to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Now remember, the Babylonians are responsible for astrology. You know when you pick up your newspaper and you've got your horoscope thing there? Well, you can thank the Babylonians for that. They're the ones who invented it. But of course, it was all about the worship of the heavenly bodies. And it was about trying to understand your fate or your destiny in connection with these heavenly bodies. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Genesis, chapters 10 through 12, in a message titled, God and the Nations. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty despot in the land. He was an arrogant tyrant, defiant before the face of the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty despot, haughty before the face of the Lord, and the homeland of his empire was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelne in the land of Shinar. Now, when the the text here refers to Nimrod as being a, a mighty hunter before the Lord, many Hebrew scholars say that the hunting there is not referring to hunting as we would normally think of it, but that he was a hunter of men or he was a conqueror of men. And so what the Bible seems to be describing here with Nimrod and with his kingdom is the first in a series of empires that would exclude God and oppress men. Now, of course, this has been the story of almost every kingdom the world has ever known. I said almost, not everyone, but almost everyone. And this picture, which I think it is a picture as well as a historical fact, this picture will find its final expression in the kingdom of the Antichrist of whom Nimrod is a type. So remember last time we talked about the the different types in scripture. We talked about the ark being a type of Christ, Noah being a type of Christ. And I think you could legitimately say that Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist or, or any of those that would have opposed God throughout the history. But ultimately, this person that we refer to as the Antichrist. Now, moving into chapter 11, there's one thing we need to understand right up front when we come to chapter 11. Chapter 11 chronologically precedes chapter 10. And it's not of vital importance, but I think it's one of those things that's good to know because, you know, skeptics are always looking for some basis to criticize the Bible, and they would certainly try to take advantage of this. But the dividing of the nations that we have been looking at here in chapter 10 resulted from the dispersion at Babel. So the events of chapter 11 actually precede chapter 10. So in a sense, the writer, Moses, he you know, tells us about the various nations and, and where the sons of Noah ended up, the direction they ended up going in. 
But then he comes back and he gives us the detail about how that dividing that we read about with Peleg, how that actually happened. And so, verse 1 of chapter 11, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Literally, it's one lip. So it seems that not only a Uh, one language, but really just one dialect. Everybody spoke exactly the same language, it seems. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shiner and they dwelt there. Now, stop for just a second. When we were talking about Noah and we were talking about the ark and we, we talked very briefly about the resting place of the ark being Mount Ararat. And it's interesting that there is the traditional Mount Ararat where there is a monastery that was built and many people for a long, long time have been convinced that that is the Mount Ararat of the Bible. And there have been expeditions that have gone to that region and you know, sought to see whether or not there's an ark. There have been people that have actually come back and said that they touched it or they photographed it or, or something like that. But, you know, it's an interesting thing that Mount Ararat that we know of today in the mountains of Turkey might not be the Ararat that the Bible is talking about. There's four places in the Bible where Ararat is mentioned, And it's interesting when you start looking at those four scriptural references, the area that the scripture refers to Ararat is not the area that we think of today, which, as I said, is in Turkey, in the area of Armenia. But the the biblical references would lead you to a place that's actually in what is today Iran. And it seems to me that that's probably the more legitimate area because notice it says that they journeyed from the east, assuming that this is all, they're coming from the place where the ark had rested and where the civilization began to develop there with the sons of Noah. I mean, maybe that's a false assumption, but, but assuming that they came from the east, they couldn't have come to Shinar from what we know today as Ararat if they were coming from the east. So there are other people who are presently still working at trying to discover just exactly where the ark is. And they have come up with this whole new idea, really, about where it might possibly be located. And looking at some of these passages... They could be right, but that's just a little side note. So verse three says, having come to Shinar, and they're dwelling there. And Shinar, of course, this is, just sort of mark that because this is gonna come up over and over and over again through the Bible. And this is Babylon. And it has, it will, we will find it all the way through the prophets in reference to the Babylonian Empire, in reference to Nebuchadnezzar, and all of those kinds of things. But we also find it in the prophecies that have to do with the future. 
There's an astounding prophecy in um, Zechariah. You know, there, there's a theory that in the end times, Babylon, literal Babylon, will be rebuilt, will be revived. And it will become a center of world power. Now, the book of Revelation, of course, speaks of mystery Babylon. And generally speaking, I think most Christian scholars would look at that as a sort of a code for Rome. But there are some who say, no, the Bible says that Babylon is going to be in power at the time of the second coming, and therefore there's an expectation of a rebuilding of Babylon. And I think there's somewhat of a, of a case that can be built for that. If you look at the prophecies of Jeremiah in, say, chapter 50 through 52, I think it is, there God through Jeremiah is prophesying the destruction of Babylon. And he describes the destruction of Babylon and he likens it to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed with fire and brimstone. It was completely destroyed. It was obliterated. But historically, Babylon, although it was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, it never was really destroyed. Now, of course, if you go to that part of the world today, you can find the area where ancient Babylon once stood, and it is, you know, kind of a heap of ruins. But it never was destroyed in the way that Jeremiah prophesied. And some people are happy with that and say, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it would have to be immediately obliterated with fire and brimstone but it has faded off of the scene historically. And so some say that's sufficient for a destruction of Babylon. Others say, no, it's got to be more specific because of what Jeremiah said. And, you know, these are things that sometimes you just sort of think about, and it's not any big deal, really. It's interesting, but it's not that big of a deal. And, and there are times I've kind of gone back and forth on it. But, you know, there's a passage in Zechariah that, that leads me to believe that there could be something to this rebuilding of Babylon. And in Zechariah chapter five, there's a vision. Zechariah has a vision of a basket. And he has a vision of these two sort of angelic type of beings. And they are lifting this basket up. And inside the basket is a woman. And there's a lid and they are told to, to seal that basket and to push that woman down into that basket and to seal it because this is wickedness. It says, and they carried the basket away to the land of Shinar. Now, the significant thing in a lot of ways is that, remember, Zechariah writes after the Babylonian captivity. He writes after the, the destruction of Babylon, Babylon in, in Zechariah's period was, it still existed under the authority of the Medes and the Persians. And Alexander came into Babylon. And, and you know, it still went on. Even in New Testament 
period, there were people that were still living in Babylon. But it slowly declined over the years, and like I said today, it's really nothing. But Zechariah's prophecy is about a time yet future from where we stand tonight. And the fact that this basket is to be taken to the land of Shinar. Now, here's another thing that I think is interesting. Of course, we know from our studies that Shinar is ancient Babylon. Ancient Babylon is Iraq. And sometimes you just wonder, you know, with all of the stuff that's going on over there, if there isn't perhaps some preparation that's being made. And another thing that I think is interesting, it's not in that exact location, but in that region, you have countries like Dubai. And Dubai, from what I hear, I haven't been there, but I've heard from people who have been there and people who live there, and I've read some articles. Boy, with what they're doing in that country, it, it sounds like what you would envision if Babylon was rebuilt. And I think, you know, having in a relatively short period of time, all that the, the king of Dubai is, or the sheik of Dubai, whatever he calls himself, uh, you know, whatever he's been able to do in building up this country. And, you know, it's, it's kind of becoming, you know, we had the wonders of the ancient world. If you had the wonders of the modern world, Dubai would, would sort of probably fit in that category. But, you know, doing all that he's done in a relatively short amount of time, it would be fairly easy to imagine that all of those financial resources in the Middle East because of oil and all of that ingenuity and all of that desire to see an Arabic or a, or a Middle Eastern, a Muslim sort of an empire be revived and uh, something right along the banks of the Euphrates. It's not hard to imagine. So you never know. Maybe Babylon will be a player in the, the end times picture. We tend to always sort of limit it to Europe. You know, we've got the revived Roman Empire. We've got Europe. And I absolutely think that that's part of it. But we have to remember that the Roman Empire was based in Rome, but the empire extended itself all throughout the Mediterranean world, all down into the Persian Gulf, into North Africa, and even further down than that. So something to think about. But back to the story in verse three. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, let's look at this for a moment. The tower itself, what are they aspiring to do here? Are they just aspiring to build the tallest building in the world at that point. It was definitely more than that. A tower whose top is in the heavens isn't referring simply to the height of the tower, but the idea behind it is that it's going to be a tower that is going to bring them into contact with deity. It's, it's going to be 
a tower that's primary purpose is for worship, but not the worship of the true God, but more than likely the worship of what the Bible would refer to later as the host of heaven. Now, remember, the Babylonians are responsible for astrology. You know, when you pick up your newspaper and you've got your horoscope thing there that I know you don't read. Well, you can thank the Babylonians for that. They're the ones who invented it. But of course, it was all about the worship of the heavenly bodies. And it was about trying to understand your fate or your destiny in connection with these heavenly bodies. And this is more than likely what was happening at this point. It was a tower reaching to heaven. It, the purpose of it was worship, but not worship of the true God. Now, this is an amazing fact. The essential identity of the various gods and goddesses of Rome, Greece, India, Egypt, the essential identity of the gods and goddesses of these and other nations with the original pantheon of the Babylonians is a well-established fact. In other words, all of those gods that the Greeks worshipped and the Romans worshipped and before them the Egyptians worshipped and later the Hindus would worship, all of those gods were just variations of the gods that were worshipped in Babylon. It was basically just the same god with a name change for the particular nation or region that they were worshipped in. So you know if you're looking at the difference between um, Roman and Greek, the Greeks saw the, the, the chief god as Zeus, the Romans saw the chief god as, as Jupiter. Jupiter and Zeus were the same person. And so you had, uh, you know, with the Greeks, you had Apollos, and with the, the Romans, you had Mercury. And, you know, so basically it was all the same deities. It was just different names. And all the way into India, and the, the Hindu gods and goddesses, all of those, even today, if you were to trace them back, you would find that all of these things originated in Babylon. In fact, Nimrod himself was later deified as the chief Babylonian god, and we read about him in the Bible. He's referred to in Scripture as Merodach or Marduk. So when you're reading about Marduk, say, in Isaiah you're actually reading about the deification of this person that we talked about a few moments ago, Nimrod. So this is what's happening. There's an attempt. This is another concerted effort to rebel against the true God. Now, I don't know, and neither does anybody else, how long of a time has passed since Noah and his family came out of the ark. Obviously, a fair number of people have 
now populated the earth, so a fair amount of time, a few hundred years maybe, have passed. We don't really know. But it's so astounding how so quickly after this judgment that wiped out everybody on the planet could be forgotten or ignored and that same rebellious tendency beginning to to rear its head and, and now once again a revolt against the true God. Notice what they say. Come, let us build ourselves. Come, let us make. This is where it all began as far as religion goes. There's only one religion in the world, and we're gonna talk about this extensively next week, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but there's only one religion in the world that originated with God, and that is the Judeo-Christian religion. Every other religion in the world began just like this one. Come, let us make. Originated in the mind of man, no doubt with the help of the demonic world, undoubtedly. You know, it's amazing. I'll tell you an, an astounding parallel. The parallels between Joseph Smith and Muhammad are astounding. Their experiences the things that they claim to encounter. It is so similar in so many ways. Obviously, there's differences as well, but very similar kinds of experiences that resulted in both cases with them believing that they had been given uh, a new religious system from God. So this is what religion is. Religion is... It's man-made. Come, let us make. But again, along with that other component, the assistance of the demonic world. But notice also, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And this is what it always comes down to. It always comes down to you're either going to worship the creator, the maker, or you will worship the creature. And in the end, man is always, you know, working at attempting to deify himself. And, you know, the the last religion to come, which is on its way, it's well on its way, is going to be humanism. It's already here, but it's gaining momentum. It's getting stronger and stronger. And And the essence of humanism, of course, is that There is no supernatural God. Man is his own God, making a name for ourselves. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. So I want to tell you about this great book that I recently read called The Air We Breathe. And the subtitle is How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. And the gist of the book is that whether we know it or not, all the things that we're passionate about, like progress, equality, freedom, kindness, all of these things 
are important to us because of Christianity, because of the influence of the gospel on our culture. And people hold to these values passionately, but they don't really even know where they came from. So this book, Glenn Scrivener is the author. He does a superb job in just tracing all of these things right back to where they originated in Jesus and the gospel. So the air we breathe, I highly recommend that you pick it up and read through it. I know that you're going to love it, and I know it will help you in conversation with others as well. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality by Glenn Shrivener. You can order the book The Air We Breathe by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Air We Breathe by Glenn Shrivener to help you understand some of culture's most cherished values. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.